Hello listeners, before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to Reimagine Work, a podcast dedicated to questioning our modern conception of work and its role in our lives. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I have conversations with philosophers, authors, creators, freelancers, and vagabonds who are trying to make sense of this question in their own lives. Join me while I try to navigate the emerging future of work. If you'd like to read more of my writing, explore this podcast, or find ways to work with me, you can go to think-boundless.com. Today, I'm talking to Gerald Bonner, who is the co-founder of Corralling Chaos. He also wrote a book called Sharpening China's Talent when he spent 14 years advising multinational companies in China. He works as a consultant and a coach, and we're going to dive into his story today. Welcome to the podcast, Gerald. Uh, Thanks for having me, Paul. It's uh, nice to have a chat with somebody on my old uh, stomping turf of Taiwan slash China. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, So I'd love to start with broad. so I'd love to start with early in your life. What are, were some of the biggest influences to you growing up? Um, so um, my, my some of the biggest influences was um, not to be uh, not to go to school. Um, I started working when I was eighteen in the garment industry, and then I went to tech school and got a, an associate's degree in electronic engin- uh, engineering. Um, and I worked for IBM, and you know I just was bouncing around. Uh, I spent six years with IBM, hated being a factory robot, I called myself, you know, because like 150, 200, 300 people every day, we just walked into that factory, we would program when to go to lunch, when to go home. And I really hated it. Um, and then, um, I can't remember what year, but I was re- I'm a big music fan, and I used to work with bands, managing bands and mixing sound in clubs. And I remember reading an article about bands, and uh, this, this statement came out to me, from this article about uh, in this music magazine and I'll read it to you. And it's, um, it was, um, it says and a successful life means living your life as lively, as rewarding as you can without allowing peer group pressure or social mores to influence your life unless you so choose. But it has to be by your choice. Millions of people spend their lives trying to do this. Few succeed. Some people do it. If not in their daily lives, then in other forms. And so that influenced me to be like, yes, I'm going to have a successful life and I'm going to make it as rewarding as I want. And I don't care about the social mores. 
and I'm going to make sure that I do things by my choices. And I can tell you, I came across that statement somewhere around 83, 86. And it's, it, it's the, one of the first lines in my mission statement. Wow. And was that still the IBM days? Yeah, that was still the IBM days. Yeah. And maybe bring us back to IBM a little. I, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about some of the myths of the blue uniform, but what was that office culture like? Oh, so I d- definitely did not fit into that uh, factory culture because um, they had just opened up a factory in Charlotte, North Carolina, and they were hiring all the um, computer certificate uh, techs coming out of school. Um, it was like, you know, you go in, you build the boxes, and you, uh, you, know, you meet the quality numbers, you run them through the tests, and then you send them down the line. And, you know, if you had to make 10 banking uh machines, you, you know, you worked on 10 banking machines. If you had to make 50 uh, computer printers, you made 50 little bank teller computer printers. If you had to make uh, five ATMs a day, you wired 10, five ATMs. And it was, it was really, it wasn't any fun because, you know, they were who they were and, you know, they, they were getting ready to go into the time where, um, what we used to call it, the acre, the acre t- uh, age, age of acre. And the inside joke was, why is IBM falling apart? Because it had one acre too many, um, so I mean it was it was a productive place, but that was it was the last days of IBM as IBM. Because then they started breaking down all the, um, you know, all the the great things that they offered the employees. Right, and they struggled for quite a period, and then they they have re-transformed in a way. But I think I imagine at least a company that size, they still have a lot of that culture. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, the new CEO, Ginny, she's trying to, you know, rebrand it and, and they're betting on AI. But, you know, some of the local stories around here is that they bought Red Hat so that they can build up their portfolio of new technology and new offerings and more profitable units so they can sell themselves. So who knows if that's really going to happen? I think so. That'd be crazy if it does. So you stumble upon that quote. What emerged out of that quote? Was it just that quote? Were there other life experiences that kind of shaped a uh, shift away from IBM? Um, yeah. So um, re- after realizing I didn't like being IBM, that's when I started to work with the band. And uh, I went back to school and picked up um, fundamentals of selling and small business management. And um, out of that, um, the biggest, next biggest influence in my life actually came in ninety. Six when I read the Seven Habits of uh, uh, of Successful People by Stephen Covey, and that's when I really locked down, my, started to write my mission statement, and to determine who I am. and And cre- my mission statement is a li- living, breathing document. It has a whole bunch of stuff uh, called the Rules of Life, and it has my um, uh, mission uh, highlights and everything like that. So I was working at uh, Bank of America, uh, and we had. Um, this guy and I, we had a couple of conversations and, you know, we learned that if you stop learning, that's it. It's a kiss of death. So th- at that point, I started learning. And then, um, you know, I gradually kept changing my mission statement. And, you know, the start of my mission statement uh, now is to be a mensch by continuing to educate myself about life from any resource. And once I have learning intelligence, I can then build my emotional intelligence and a whole various other sets of intelligences so that I can live my life as I choose and have my soul print and share my soul print with my friends and loved ones. And one of the key things of the intelligences that I think a lot of things 
excluding your podcast, talks about is the money part. Most of the educational systems, STEM, STEAM, they all talk about these sciences and technology and engineering and arts. They don't talk about financial intelligence. And until people learn financial intelligence, they will always be under the thumb of the big corporations. And that's something I share in my TED Talk. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I, I think the financial intelligence has been something that's been uh, interesting for me because I think if you're defaulting to a full-time job, you kind of uh, just accept you're going to make a certain amount of money and then you design life around it. And I think in my self-employment journey, that's really flipped for me. Um, have you gone through a, did you go through that uh, in the 80s as well? Oh, sure. Because I was getting laid off. So I quit IBM went back into, you know, and then I quit a couple of companies and after having small part-time jobs. So I'm like the first job hopper. I mean, before <laughs> I started a company in, in China, I was like changing jobs every two years. If you look at the data, it actually shows today's generation is moving jobs less than if you look at the previous generation for the same ages. I think it's probably hidden too, because a lot of people were working in jobs that you did a lot more short term. And today people are working in more, I guess, career office type jobs, but um, still pretty interesting finding that out. Right. So I, my insight to that is that's because they have the student loans and there's no way they're going to buy a house if they can't pay off the loan. So yeah, they, they, they're like, oh my God, I, I mean, when I graduated school, you know, we didn't have 10, 15, $20,000 school student loans. We had maybe a $3,000 student loan. So, you know, that's a, that's a big shift. So that's where that comes from. I'd love to go back for a second before we move mm -hmm. forward. Where did you get the idea to come up with a mission statement? I don't think, I mean, even still, this isn't a common thing, but where did you get that idea from that you might sit down and kind of map out what matters to you? Um, the Stephen Covey book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I mean, he strictly talks about um, creating a mission statement. I think it's uh, uh, habit two, begin with the end in mind. So you start with your mission statement and he says, what do you want on your uh, epitaph uh, and tombstone? And then, then work your life back to that. And so that's where I got that idea. And I started, it started off pretty simple with, um, you know, what do I want to be? And my personal principle statement, which is the quote from the rock and roll magazine. And then I heard a story on NPR where some guy had passed and he had three rules of life. And, he, he, and so it, the three rules of life were learn to laugh, have a good time, hurt as few people as possible. I was like, that's too cool. I got to put that on my mission statement. I love and it. That, Right. And that those, you know, there's now 20 rules of life that I've collected. Some are my own, some, and then some have come from books that I've continued to read about, you know, being a lifelong learner, um, listening uh, to people talk. I, I'll give you a really cool quote from Cindy Lauper that's on my mission statement. Okay. It's her quote that I heard on NPR was, and then is, um, it's, a, it's a life's practice to walk joyfully through life. That's just like amazing, right? I mean, you know, and most people don't realize that it's the, you know, and I've heard you say this on other podcasts, it's the journey. And I always believe that my life, I'm writing every chapter of my life and I take full responsibility for my choices. So I never complain that somebody else did something to me. So I don't have that victim mentality, right? Yeah, I love that too. I think 
there's perhaps something else there, which is just that I think oftentimes we think we can think our way to change. And what I've discovered is you kind of just have to take a, a step. And uh, I get, I don't remember exactly what Lauper said, but kind of just walk the walk before you can talk the talk, um, which is not a way a lot of people think about change. That's true. And, and one of the skills that I've developed that I don't really talk about too much but other people have noticed it in me, and they have said to me, "What I do really, um, what I do really well is I always, I never worry about where's the. I know what the end goal is, and I don't worry about all the steps in between. I just worry about what do I have to do next by when. So I might have a project that has three months to go, and I might not have all the clear steps, but I know what I need to do for the next step. And then once that's done, I need, I know what I need to do for the next step." You ended up leaving uh, IBM, moving around to a couple other corporate jobs. You were the original job hopper. Where were you at that time, and uh, what was what was energizing you? Um, well, I mean, so learning was always energizing. And so um, I ended up in the 90s working for the University of North Carolina as a computer consultant. And, and as I say in my TED Talk, um, Al Gore might have invented the internet, but me and my friends built it. So we were literally the geeks, you know, running cable to computers, installing Novell software, teaching people how to use uh, Netscape when it first came out in 94. And, and that was fun and that was exciting. And, you know, I think like I heard in some of your other podcasts, you, you kind of get stuck into that rut where you're like, well, this is all I know. So I really don't want to get out of this. I, I, I need to stay in here because this is my bread and butter. But after a while, I, I got really bored at working at the state because, you know, it's a government institution and there's not a lot of opportunity. The, the pay ranges or, you know, and salary increases are voted in by the state legislature. So you don't get they don't have a whole lot of respect for people um, as and, and their employees as far as compensation. And they're not leading edge. Um, so I just decided to take a jump and go into the corporate world at the height of the dot com bust uh, right before the dot com bust. I got into the back into the public sector in October of 99. And by March of 2000, everything started falling apart. However, looking at the upside, I learned a lot through emerging an M&A situation. I got to do international um, presentations to global audiences about, um, about the technology. And I got to see the world. And I was like, that's really something I've always was having in my back pocket of how can I see the world? How can I travel around the world? That would just make, how can I live abroad? And while I was in, um, in Argentina, um, I met a rock uh, blues guitarist who's doing a bunch of shows in Argentina. So I went to the club, saw his show. He invited me out to go hang out with the band on the weekend at a college. So I went. And while I was on my way home from that uh, college gig with the band, I was talking to the Australian drummer. And I said to him, dude, you only uh, play drums with this guy for the next three weeks. What do, you, what do you do before you play drums for him and after you play drums for him? He goes, oh, I teach English. I'm like, you teach English? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, well, how do you stay here? And he goes, well, I just go across the border every 90 days uh, and get another tourist visa for 90 days. And I live with my girlfriend. I'm like, well, what about students? He goes, the Argentinians just come up to me and say, can I teach them English? And I say 50 pesos an hour. And they say, yes, I teach them. I'm like, so you have no materials. 
you have no sponsor and you just hang out. He goes, yeah. And I'm like, that's too easy. I can do that. And so I ended up, I ended up losing uh, my job with this uh, international company during the, the dot-com bust and meltdown. And people said to me, Gerald, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to Argentina to teach English. And they were like, we sent you down there to sell equipment. I'm like, well, now you're fired. So I'm going down there to teach English. But then Argentini, uh, the Argentinian economy crashed. And wow. so I was talking to my international business developer who, uh, for Asia who had said to me, Gerald, China just got into the World Trade Organization. China's got the 2008 Olympics. They need English teachers to go to China. And so I got my ESL certification from Duke, got another part-time, got another job in between getting my ESL certification and got laid off from that job. And, and when they laid me off, they said to me, Cheryl, we have to let you go. And I just looked these senior managers in the eye and said, look, no, no problem. I said, I've been laid off many a times. I said, you got people that are in that office that have never been laid off before. I said, I'm going to China. I've got my money. I know I've got my ESL certification, 75% complete. This is no big deal. Take care of those kids because I'm out of this country. <laughs> that's that's amazing. So it seems like you're like leaving school and your career interests and the arc of your early jobs really aligned with every major crash to get you laid off at like every point of your career. No, you're absolutely right. I went through the night. I was laid off in 91 during the economic crisis. Well, I don't, in 91, it wasn't an economic crisis, but I was laid off in 91. Um, and then, of course, there were some really bad managers that I worked for. Right. You know, I, I, that fired me. <laughs> and so, and then I got reinstated and, and it still didn't work out because, you know, you, you realize you're working for losers that don't really care about you. Do you look Sorry, at all... Do you look at all these experiences of as almost helping you gain more resilience? No, absolutely. So um, it, it's that's spot on uh, uh, analysis, Paul. And I can tell you that um, well, one of my books uh, that a friend of mine uh, said I needed to read was "Anti Fragile" by the, go, the guy who wrote "The Black Swan." Yeah, Nassim and, Taleb. That's a great book. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> I love it's, that book. It was a hard book to read. It's a hard book to read. But it was very good, and it was, and that I felt like, yes, he had written that book about me. And you know, when he said, you know, you got to learn how to, you know, maneuver through the ups and downs of the employment market. I'm like, I can do that. And I actually, to show you how my mission statement changes, after reading that book, I changed the title of my mission statement to um, "Learning and Doing Makes Me Anti-Fragile to Live Life with Courage." Yeah, I love that. Perhaps you can tell us, uh, for people that haven't read it, what anti-fragile uh, means, or I'm happy to uh, jump in. I've I've read it and uh, written about it a little. Okay, so I'd like to hear your side of it because I, I know how I I know how I explain it, and it's kind of tough. <laughs> so, so I think the concept is pretty much fragility is some everybody knows fragility, right? It's a glass face, and if you push it, it's going to shatter into a million pieces. But the concept of anti-fragile is basically saying by uh, being robust to small kind of pains or um, ups and downs, you actually make the system stronger. So if you look at it at an individual's level, getting laid off several times, but in a way that's not going to ruin your life or uh, dealing with a uh, hundred failures uh, in a way that's not going to completely 
destroy your financial health. It's actually just going to make you stronger in the uh, long term. Yeah, that, that, very well said. So I would agree 100% with that. So, and that's what I am. I mean, I don't, and, and that applies to my dating life. Uh, that when I'm in relationships, it deals with the way I deal with relationships, whether they're positive or negative, uh, whether they're work people or uh, social people. I just look at it like, okay, you know, you either take me for who I am um, or you, you walk away from me. I'm okay with that. And one of my favorite quotes that I saw on LinkedIn a, a couple of years ago was, uh, when you are comfortable with who you are, not everybody's going to like you and you won't care. And that's where I live. That's the space I am. And just to kind of bring it back to, you know, the work part and the future work for the last five years, I've been telling people, I do what I like to do with people I like to be with for the compensation we mutually agree on. And if we mutually agree on the compensation, I don't complain that they don't pay me enough. I just do the work because I agreed on to it because it's got those three components. And there's times I've worked with people and you know I'll start to sense that things are not working right. And I'll go to them. I'll say, you know why this isn't working out? And they're like, why? I'm like, because um, I don't think we, we didn't mutually agree on the compensation or you know what? I don't like working with you because you keep jerking me around. And I don't say it that directly, but that's what I sense. And I go, and, and one of my, um, uh, I was going through a Vistage training program to be a Vistage chair. And the guy that was training us, he made a statement that I really try to live on. And it's really, really hard to do. And it said, it, the statement was, you are what you tolerate. And I try not to tolerate too much really serious stuff that 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 breaks that aura of doing what I love to do with the people I like to do it for mutual compensation. I like that framework. It's definitely something I've uh, enjoyed about being self-employed is that even if a project isn't great in the short term, it typically ends and it helps me recalibrate of where to focus uh, with the next project or even just decide not to uh, take a project for a while. Yeah, exactly. Right. You, you know what you'll tolerate next, right? You know what you won't put up with. And again, back to that financial intelligence, because of my financial intelligence, I know that in any given day, I'm not going to blow through the success, the financial success I have at the level I have. And so I'm, I just, I'm just not going to go poor tomorrow. And, you know, uh, I'll share with you this. I've, I've only had one or two jobs where I was paid over $50,000 a year. And n- remember, if those jobs didn't last six, more than two years, that's not a whole lot of time. But the amount of wealth that I've accumulated, and by no means am I a wealth millionaire. But when, I tell pe- uh, but when I tell people what I got, they're like, wait a minute, but you don't make any money. And I'm like, yeah, but I know how to invest. Wow. So I think that's going to be shocking for some people, especially some of the listeners in the corporate world. I mean, I talk to people, some of my friends in New York, and they're making like gobs of money and they they can't even imagine uh, taking a 20% pay cut. But what have been some of the ways you've designed your life to actually just decrease your spending? Um, So, uh, well, I've had um, one, I'm very fortunate to have people that care about me give me opportunities to live in places that um, help me uh, manage my costs, especially since I came back from China after 14 years. So um, I really appreciate those people that are like, you can live here until you get your business going. 
and I pay rent and I pay utilities. And so that's one of the things. Um, my favorite quote that I live by that came out in 1926 was, um, that uh, I found astonishing is about Americans. It said, people spend money they don't have to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't like. And I am not that person. <laughs> I, I live under my budget. I manage my costs. I watch everything I do. I optimize my investments. I have, I've learned how to create an investment strategy that, that matches my personality and my risk tolerance. And I, I take bets in the market that usually pay off big. So uh, I had one company that I invested in, uh, an American company I invested in uh, while I was in China, 72% return on investment for 12 years. 72% every year. So have you made other choices to either choose to work independently such that you could actually work less and focus on other things in your life? Well, so the move to China was all about, um, you know, living in China to experience, to live abroad. I mean, I always wanted to live abroad. I learned that I could teach English. So I got on a plane, you know, and started teaching English. And it was like, okay, so now that I, and because of I, I had good financial uh, strategies, I was able to always have enough money in the bank account to, like, I could go, I, I literally went like a year and a half in China without making any money. And people are like, how are you paying your bills? I'm like, I saved up, you know, the money I saved up from from those big uh, business, those big projects I had. And they're like, right. wait a minute. Oh, and so you get it, right? You know, because you're in Taiwan, you know, it's cheap to live there. So you know, I just was like, you know, so for the listeners, um, imagine having a twenty five thousand dollar project that goes eight weeks and having that money last two years. That's just how, how many people really can do that, right? Talk to me about China. Where did you go? What were the first six months like? What were some of your uh, experiences? I mean, the culture. I mean, Taiwan's probably not as uh, strong culturally um, as China, but still pretty intense. Uh, what were some of the uh, lessons from arriving there? Okay, so when I arrived in China, um, I was first I was teaching English for like one of these English language schools that you know had you working twenty five hours a week, and I was okay with that because I was ready to get work to work, and I was really excited about applying my ESL skills to the best level I could. Um, within six months of being on the ground in China, I got my first corporate consulting gig to Volvo. <laughs> so I was hanging out, the, you know, Paul would, would understand this. And for the listeners, imagine you go every week to the expat bar where there's all the expats are hanging out. The Western music is playing and you're meeting people, you're meeting businessmen. They're trying to let down their hair after a long week of in China doing business. And I met this guy who had helped open up a Volvo plant in China who worked for Volvo. And after, you know, two months of conversations, they hired me to coach the deputy general manager and they hired me to do business English training to the um, to the senior staff, and boom, I was making like extra ca I was making extra money on the side of my English job, and that extra and I was just banking that extra money, right? So that's that was the first six months, and I was learning Chinese. So um, I'm not I don't know about your Mandarin skills, but you know I can understand eighty percent of what I talk about in China. So you know, and it was you know. Any weekend that I can get, take out a small trip, um, a small weekend trip to go around somewhere in the province that I was living in. I went to Confucius's hometown. 
I climbed this mountain that's one of the five famous mountains in China. Um, I went to Shanghai. So, you know, quickly I was out and about to see the country uh, the first year I was there. And what kept you in China? I mean, 14 years is a long time. Yeah, so so I left during the dot-com bust, which I left in the summer of 2003, July 2003. And five years later, you know, so so the English thing went well. I was making money, having fun. Then I got the corporate training job where I opened up a, a satellite office for a company out of Shanghai. And so that was really good because that's, that's what taught me how to deal with HR people and senior executives and how to market them and how to understand the, the people development space. And I did that job for two and a half years. So now it's five years. And all of a sudden, 2003 plus five is 2008. <laughs> and bam, you know, everything fell apart. So I was like, well, I guess I can't go home again. So I just wrote it out. And again, because I had, I had money, it's like, okay, I have money. I can you know, find ways to make, uh, make money, and I don't need to go back home and be a 48-year-old guy trying to figure out how to get a job in the worst economic crisis of my lifetime. So I just stayed, and next thing I know, it, I opened up my own uh, consulting company called Sharpening Axes, and I started doing more management consulting to a couple of companies, and I got one client – uh, it was Selenese, and they ended up using me as a consultant coach for two and a half years out of three. And and they were paying me really good money, which I was just putting it into the bank. And this period in China was a pretty dramatic boom. You talked about the them being entered into the World Trade Organization, which I know really kick-started a lot of uh, investment and growth there. But what were some of the shifts and changes you saw just from the uh, companies you were working with or even just the growth of the cities? So, so from a picture of the growth of the cities, you really saw the build-out of of the metro systems. I mean, Shanghai's got 18 lines now. Uh, I w- so you asked earlier, I lived in a city called uh, uh, Shandong, Jinan. So Shandong's the province, and Jinan was the city. So I lived there for three years. Then I went to uh, Nanjing in Jiangsu province. I saw them build out three subway lines. And then I went to Shanghai. So the last four years I was in Shanghai, you know, there was an article that I saw um, – in what on LinkedIn where it said China builds four Manhattans a year, and I would go, yeah, that's about right, because you just be, you know, driving on the train, and you we saw the build out of the high speed rails, we saw the build out of the airport system, um, we saw the people. We, I'll tell you something on the learning side, Toastmasters went crazy in China. It went from a hundred people to five thousand people from like two thousand six to 2014. I mean, Toastmaster clubs were popping up all over the place because they were like free English teaching, practicing presentation skill, learning, uh, learning leadership skills. They were like, you want to talk about one thing that exploded in China? Toastmasters just went nuts because they were just like, this is too cheap. And what I learned and the skills I developed, and I saw all these young Chinese kids with good English skills and enthusiasm and motivation, just go, I'm not doing that anymore. I could be a public speaker. I could be a public trainer. I can be a great um, uh, translator because I have the skills to speak in front of audiences and I'm not afraid anymore. And they just like, they were just starting their own consulting practices left and right. And their parents were like, 
no, you can't do that. That's not stable. And they're like, I, yeah, I can do this. And I'm getting a lot of recognition and I'm speaking in front of 300 people and winning contests. So that was a really, really big boom. What has been the business culture like, especially for some of the big companies in China? Their, their culture is pretty much, let's not get in trouble with the law. Let's treat the people the way the law says we got to treat them. Let's try to be fair. Let's try to be reasonable. But let's make sure we make our money and we don't miss it. Well, now it's over, right? Because the golden days of China are gone. You know, the days of 12 and 14% growth are gone. It's if if you believe then if you want to believe the government numbers at six and a half six it's okay but you know they're just happy to can we make our profit and if we can't and if we don't make the china boat we're really going to have the problem so that's you know they, they you know they treated the people nice they you know the expats would come the expat leaders would come in try to make a little um implant an uh, imprint on the culture and then they would leave um I'll, I'll tell you a really funny story about how the chinese see the expats so i went and talked to this big french um glass company and we were talking to the hr manager and we said so how do you guys make the uh, leadership decisions and how do you make strategy decisions on learning and development and they said well we do what we want and we don't really or we're not concerned with the general manager i said why are you not concerned and they said well they run it they filter in every three years so the first six to eight months, the new general manager comes in. They're trying to get their feet on the ground. They're trying to figure out the traffic. They're trying to figure out the food. They're trying to make the, the trailing spouse happy. They're trying to get the kids into school. So the first six months is all about you know, getting stable, learning the work environment. Then they have like a two-year window or an 18-month window to make their impression on the plant, to hit some numbers, develop some policies and practices that – make the factory look better that give it a bump and a kick so that that general manager can say look what i did in china because the last six months there's how am i getting out of here what's my next job coming home right so, so the chinese are like this is just the three year. this person is just here for three years so they were okay with it yeah they were like we'll run the business and we'll just <laughs> we know what to give them so they look good and so that they don't really give us a hard time when did you start thinking about maybe I'll come back to the U.S.? Because I know you've recently uh, come back, but when did you start thinking about, okay, maybe uh, the time in China is time to uh, shift somewhere else again? Yeah, so so um, it was uh, in 2015, um, I was offered a job with LinkedIn China. And um, just a long story short, uh, I was doing LinkedIn training, LinkedIn selling, LinkedIn recruiting strategies to senior executives and HR teams. I was doing workshops. I met the senior executive of uh, China, LinkedIn China, the number two guy. And within two months, he offered me a job and he created a job for me. And I said to people, this is it. It's a three-year contract. When I finish this three-year contract, I'm going home because it'll be 17 years. Well, because Beijing, right, ready to talk about the craziness, Beijing turned around and said, this guy can't work in Beijing because he doesn't have a bachelor's degree. And LinkedIn turned around and said, wait a minute, he's been here 13 years. And they said, we don't care what he does in Nanjing. He's not going to work in Beijing. We don't wow. care what the Nanjing government has said. We don't care that he's got a business in that in, and he's been here 13 years and speaks Chinese. He can't work in Beijing because he doesn't have a bachelor's. And was that a result of them just trying to find a reason to 
deny you the job and give it to somebody else that might be local or I have no idea, but right. I waited 10 months to get that, get on that job. And then I got in and the dynamics of the office have, of course changed. And when I, now it was a bigger team and there were new different players on board. And when I said, and uh, when I went to the team and said, Hey, I'm here to help you sell. They were like, we don't need you. You don't speak Chinese. You're Chinese. Good enough. And I looked at my boss and I'm like, what's the onboarding strategy? And he was like, you know, he was worried about his quarterly numbers and so he didn't really care about me. And seven months later I was let go because they were like, you're not performing. I'm like, well, yeah, nobody wants to talk to me. Right. And so after that job, after I left LinkedIn, I said, that's it. I, I said to people, I said, I'm leaving after LinkedIn. I didn't realize it. The three year contract had lasted seven months. I said, I'm out of here. And I just packed it up and left. I mean, a lot's changed in those 14 years. What, what were some of your reflections on your time in China? So basically, you know, the first thing I'm looking at is I'm an expat um, that has no college, that has no four-year degree and is now 60 years old. And I know nobody's going to hire me. And I refuse, okay, so for your listeners, I refuse to use the application tracking system and reply to 600, 1,000 jobs for me to pop out somewhere to some company that's finally going to go, maybe this guy is going to get it, you know, because my resume and what I can do and what I learned, you know, people are just not going to like go, hmm, this, you know, that AI system is not going to kick out a 60-year-old guy with no bachelor's. So I don't yeah. waste my time, right? So I came back and I said, I got to find people that want to start a company that can leverage my skill set. And I met a bunch of people and we started talking. And after four months of talking, one person, his name is Ted Benson, who's my managing partner, he and I created Corraling Chaos. And you know, we put together the marketing plan and we put together the, the mission statement and we said, this is what we're going to offer the market. And it was my insights that have helped him and me uh, and my insights about how to take a company public, uh, not public, but how to take a company to market, how to set up a mission statement, how to you know, create the marketing material, how to create the branding, how to create the image. All that stuff has really helped us because he's because at the end of the day, you know, I'm always sharing with Ted, my partner. Hey, we, we got to write papers. We got to do videos. We got to get on podcasts. And, you know, and I'm showing him that, you know, th this is the one podcast I'm doing today of two. OK, so this afternoon I'm doing another podcast for a local company. So, you know, we're constantly out there networking. We're constantly out there talking to clients about our, our vision and what we want to do and why it's important that they keep employees longer than two years or three years. And, you know, we're out there. So having been down that road and having done it in China, uh, I'm very comfortable at doing it in the United States because I know what it takes. I know how I to differentiate our company and our brand. Uh, nobody tells us our company name is is too weird to understand everybody loves our company name everybody loves our logo so we're already off to a good start with a good name and a good logo so um you know that so that's how it's the reflection has been what kind of companies are you looking to work with in the u.s yeah so our bottom uh, our bottom measurable that we target uh, uh on the um on the bullseye is they have to be about 30 to 40 people minimum in staff headcount they don't have an HR team. Um, they have about 
uh, $8 million on the books or revenue. Uh, they have an enlightened leader or they have some pain that they need to get rid of uh, and they want to keep their people longer than three years. So, you know, it, it could be, and, and Ted's got a very uh, high pedigree of working in great biotech. He's got 25 years of biotech experience. So he, and this is a biotech rich environment. So we're really, you know, we're in that space as well. And so we're trying to help companies understand that, okay, you got a good product. You got a good, you're making, you're getting uh, funding, whether it's seed, uh, seed funding or raising capital through VCs and you want to keep the people you got and you want to keep them longer. How can we help you develop? Like we want to say to them, it's not, if you want to have a great culture, and you're, you want to have a strong employer value proposition to attract people that want to work for your purpose, that's really important. If you don't get people to align with purpose, forget it. And you talk about that in some of your other podcasts. Um, how, do you get, how do you promote your, your purpose to the market to attract people that want to stay with you five, six years, seven years? And how do you get them to grow and how do you get them to deliver exceptional results? So that's yeah. what we're about. And I think sometimes that, that can be a hard screen, right? I think I try to do the same and, um, I actually find it hard to find tons of leaders that in action, at least are putting their people in their number one or two priorities. Are you finding more companies that are excited about this recently? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was hoping you'd say something else. Cause I, I mean, I read, the. Um, Reinventing Organizations. I think it's an amazing book by uh, Frederick Leloux. And he talks about people in these new models and the things that are working. And his big caveat at the end is you need an evolutionary leader, somebody that really wants to think about things in a different context. And he's like, without this, I'm not sure if you can actually make any of these changes. And I was like, man, that's pretty brutal. Um, and, and, and they're not out there because they're... T- they're trying to make payroll. They're trying to, right. you know, get their investors to stay uh, stay ahead of the game. They're they're trying to keep the, the government off. There. They're trying to keep FDA regulations from blowing up in their face. You know, they're trying not to kill people during clinical trials. Um, you know, they're trying to make their numbers and to sit back and go, we should be thinking about our people. Is I mean, they it all comes down to what you said earlier. They have the talk. They don't have. We were talking to a, a potential client. This guy really likes us. And we said to him, Which, who on your management team above you is going to carry the torch and, and model this behavior? And he looked at us and said, nobody. He goes, they don't have the bandwidth to put this on their radar. Where do you want to send people if they want to learn more about Corel and Chaos or to connect with you? So they can look for me on LinkedIn, Gerald Bonner, um, and they'll they'll see some Chinese uh, characters on there. So uh, and it says Gerald Bonner, knowledge a knowledge broker, because I come up with knowledge, and most people are like, "How do you know all this stuff?" You know, we just like, well, we just know it, you know. Um, and um, so, um, yeah, so we um, we uh, have that um, stuff. Uh, they they can look up corralingchaos.com. And when they go to CorellingChaos.com, the page they want to go to uh, for individuals that for your audience, they want to go to Master Learning Agility because that's where we have our white papers. That's where we have our books. 
uh, that we've read. And uh, so it takes you to my good read page. It takes you to my business partner's list of his books that he, he's, he's been reading. Um, and with your, um, with your, uh, uh, approval, Paul, I'd love to put a link on, uh, our most favorite websites to your podcast. Cause I think freelancers definitely need to be listening to what you guys have been sharing. Um, your 10 myths uh, about work was an awesome podcast. Um, your podcast uh, with uh, Stephen was really wonderful, and I'd like to send people there from the uh, Mastering Learning Agility so they can, you know, stay ahead. So I'd, I'd, I'd really like to make that offer to you. It was a pleasure talking with you today, Gerald. Uh, thank you for having me. And it's always fun to help people realize that they're in control of their lives, and if they don't define it, then it, what they have not defined is what they will get. Thank you for listening to the Reimagine Work Podcast. It's been such a fun journey to start this podcast, start getting random feedback from around the world, and to continue to meet and have conversations with such amazing people who really helped me learn and in some ways have started to become my friends. I think a podcast, I've started to push a lot of people to, to create podcasts can be this hack almost to uh, jump through the hoops of the awkwardness of networking that people don't like and actually get down to have a deeper conversation and I found it's been pretty cool to do that. Um, I want to keep this as basically a fun creative endeavor. I don't want to have ads. I think there are a lot of ads out there that you can basically just give a coupon code and you get pretty small dollars on the advertising. I've looked into it. Um, I think it's kind of annoying when you're listening to things, though I think podcast advertising is probably the least bad of any uh, advertising we've seen. Anyway, if you feel compelled to support the podcast, I have a Patreon page. Right now, that is probably the main way to support. So I think for me, asking for contribution or support is really a selfish motive. I'd like to dedicate more of my time to creating, writing, helping people, having these conversations, and just spending a lot more time thinking deeply, reading books, uh, writing about these topics. And if you think that's something worth doing, uh, I'd love to see the show of support. If you have feedback on the podcast, guests you want me to talk to, want to make comments on my monotone voice, you can send them my way. I take any and all comments and just love the support. Uh, thanks so much for the people listening and let's keep reimagining work. Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can of course check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.